Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. You know, I don't even remember any of this. The last thing I remember was I was just like dancing and having a good time and drinking tequila shots. But I ruined, I ruined the whole party of like 200 people or something. So after that, you know, when I had a clear mind and we were going back to the shore, I said, I'm calling my agency and I'm going back to, uh, to Paris. And I said, I'm never touching another drink again. And I actually never touched another drink again. That was Nikki Dubose. And this is the Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast, and today we have Nikki Dubose joining us on the show, and she is the author of Washed Away, From Darkness to Light. Her book is a memoir that recounts her experiences as a model as she overcomes more than 17 years of battling with child sexual victimization, eating disorders, psychosis, alcoholism, drugs, depression, suicide attempts, body dysmorphic disorder, and various other mental health issues, all while trying to navigate through the dark side of the fashion industry. It's an epic story where we go into sex addiction, food addiction, and drug addiction. But before we dive into Nikki's story... Let's start off with our daily reading. And here's one I found that was very appropriate, especially for this episode. Hardships, February 1st. We felt different. Only after surrender are we able to overcome the alienation of addiction. But you don't understand. We sputtered, trying to cover up. I'm different. I've really got it rough. We use these lines over and over in our active addiction, either trying to escape the consequences of our actions or avoid following the rules that apply to everyone else. We may have cried them at our first meeting. So many of us felt different or unique. As addicts, we can use almost anything to alienate ourselves. But there's no excuse for missing out on recovery. Nothing that can make us ineligible for the program. Not a life-threatening illness, not poverty, not anything. There are thousands of addicts who have found recovery despite the real hardships they've faced. Through working the program, their spiritual awareness has grown. In spite of, or perhaps in response to, those hardships. Our individual circumstances and differences are irrelevant when it comes to recovery. By letting go of our uniqueness and surrendering to the simple way of life, we're bound to find that we feel a part of something. And feeling a part of something gives us the strength to walk through life, hardships and all. Just for today, I will let go of uniqueness and embrace the principles of recovery I have in common with so many others. My hardships do not excuse me from recovery. Rather, they draw me into it. My name is Omar and I'm an addict and today's reading is another amazing reading. I can't tell you how many times I've shared at a meeting that recovery is easy when everything is going fantastic, when things are going well at work, when things are going well in your relationship, in your marriage, with your girlfriend, with your kids. When life in general is going smooth, then it's easy to be grateful and it's easy to to work a good program, make meetings. But the real test of your recovery comes when hardships present themselves. And it's so true. It's so true. 
my recovery has been tested on many occasions. Uh, one of the toughest was when my, my dad was sick and dying of cirrhosis, and it was a year-long battle before he passed away. And uh, the last six months I spent with him, taking him back and forth to the hospital, being in the hospital with him, and his mental state diminished on a daily basis. And towards the end, you know, we wondered if he even knew that we were there. And it was so hard. It was so difficult. And I wanted to use every single day just to numb it out. You know, leaving the hospital, all I could think about was how good it would feel to have a drink or, you know, to smoke some weed, anything to disconnect from the reality of what was going on in my life. Uh, but instead, I went to a meeting. Instead, I reached out to the addicts in my recovery circle, and it made all the difference in the world. Being able to share with my friends openly, to cry openly, and to deal with these hardships together was the only way that I made it. By myself, I would have made the wrong decision. But with the help of all of, um, of my recovery network, I made it. And Nikki's, and Nikki's story is no different. It's just a series of hardships where you ask yourself, is it worth it to stay clean? Is it worth it to walk through this pain? Or is it better to just do what I've always done and numb it out? And I can tell you without question, without a doubt, that working through it and using your recovery network and your program, the foundation that you've built through working a program, is the only thing that will get you through those hardships. Clean. HP, baby. Thanks for letting me share. So now let's dive into Nikki's story. But first... If you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. First, I want to thank the people who have sent us donations via PayPal. There are a few of you that still continuously send donations on a monthly basis, but we can always use more. So on a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me five bucks a month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal, to send me five bucks, either PayPal or by Patreon, then please feel free to do so. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers. The money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know 
how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the Private Accountability Group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www SoberNation.com. SoberNation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Nikki, thanks for joining us. Hey, Omar. Um, wait, I call you O. You're my O, always and forever. Thanks for having me on the show today. <laughs> I'm leaving that in, just so you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like queen of the screw up, just so everybody knows I'm the queen of the screw up. This is great. Oh, man. We're off to a great start. We're off to a great start. So, folks, today we have Nikki DuBose joining us on the Share Podcast. And Nikki is a former model turned author, speaker, and mental health advocate. Her debut memoir, Washed Away from Darkness to Light, was released September 30th, 2016. In Washed Away, Nikki recounts her experiences navigating the dark side of the modeling industry while battling abuse, addiction, and various mental health issues. She recently appeared in the Oprah Winfrey Network on the T.D. Jake Show to speak about her recovery from body... Holy cow, hold on. Body dysmorphic disorder. From body dysmorphic disorder and eating disorders. And there's a lot of ands in there. From... <laughs> And how the pressure to fit into the modeling industry nearly killed her. Man, did I somehow get that right in there, Nikki? Yeah, you did. You did an excellent job. Just imagine living through that. So if it's hard to say it, just imagine going through it. You don't want to go through that. that. All right, let's dive right in here. So first of all, Nikki, uh, tell us a little bit about what your normal daily routine looks like including recovery? Well, it looks a lot different than it used to, you know. Um, and, and I try to remember to give all the, the glory to God, you know, to pray um, when I wake up because in the morning my mind is like mush, you know. It's, uh, it's unreliable, right? You know, my thoughts are kind of all over the place. Um, yeah, last year I was diagnosed with um, – uh, major depression and psychosis. So I, which kind of helps me to understand better why my mind is, is the way it is, why it is all over the place and why it tends to be negative a lot of times. So it's really important for me in the morning to, um, to focus on something positive and to get out a recovery book. Um, I have a, a book called the, um, 
the life recovery book, uh, Bible and workbook. So I try to do something 12 step based or just get a positive book that is, you know, like a meditation book centered on spirituality and something to remind me that God loves me. Um, you know, try to meditate on Bible verses, something that's going to help me get my mind focused in the right direction for the day. Because if I don't do that, and there have been times when I don't do that, I end up in a really bad mood or, you know, doing things that are like my old self. And it's usually not a good result, you know? No, I hear you. I hear you. Now, I want to touch on that real quick, because one of my questions that I normally ask our listeners is how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? And you seem to have a very a strong connection with your higher power. So is there something more that you do to maintain that spirituality? So first of all, before I go into that, I would say I'm absolutely, so there's no such thing as a perfect person, right? You know, and I think that like people reach out to me and they're like, wow, you're so amazing. You, you seem to have like it all figured out, but I absolutely don't have it all figured out. And just because I wrote a book about, or, you know, like I'm post things, you know, I absolutely don't. And there's no such thing as a perfect person. I don't have it figured out. And God knows that. And he loves me regardless. That's what I do know. I'm just trying to do the best I can. I do get really depressed. I do screw up constantly, maybe even more than I did in my past, you know, but I try to remember that um, when I screw up and when I am having these dark moments um, that I, I have someone to reach out to. I have have my higher power, which for me is God. And I, before I make a, a big major oops, you know, I, I now know that I can stop. I can, um, reach out to God. I can pray and I can open my Bible and I can find a verse that is, you know, in accordance with what I'm struggling with, or I can reach out to a mentor, someone who's there for me. And, and I have that person, you know, so I think that prayer, uh, meditation, stopping, before I act on an impulse is super important. Beautiful. That is great. And yeah, I always ask this question because there's a big confusion, especially in early recovery, in reference to religion and spirituality. Yeah. And for many of us, for many years, that's been convoluted and one does not exist without the other. And in my life, and for many of us, my life exists in spirituality devoid of any sort of religious practice. That's just me. Yeah. So we're going to move on to, I want to know, as far as your drugs and alcohol clean date, uh, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? Well, that, uh, I don't know the exact date, but I do know that it was um, November of 2011. And I know that because I almost destroyed an entire uh, yacht. And because of that, I, <laughs> I will never forget that as long as I live. I think I got an entire ship mad at me and they about kicked me off the ship. So that's the day that I said no more to drugs and alcohol. And that was November of 2011. Well, I can't wait to hear the rest of that story. But first, tell us a little bit about the first time you drank or used drugs. And more importantly, how did they make you feel that first time? I started drinking um, when I was 13. Um, my mom... Again, my mother, this relationship that I had with my mother, it was very, um, we like mirrored each other a lot. Um, so my mom, this is important to understand. Also, my mother had bipolar disorder and dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. Um, 
And so there was a history there between my mom and I of physical and sexual abuse. Um, and so my mom and I started to go out downtown together and, um, she would take me out with her to bars. And I remember having, you know, that's when I started to drink. Um, and I was already, uh, you know, engaging in my eating disorders. By that time, I had already had an eating disorder for five years, which is really heavy <laughs> for. Dude, seriously. But I didn't. The thing is, is that, you know, I, I think as with any child who is, um, you know, engaging in any sort of um, uh, disordered behavior, when you when you start doing that at, at an early age, it becomes your normal. So you don't realize the the seriousness and the deep psychological, physical, you know, emotional impact that it's having on you. So I didn't understand, you know, what was what was really going on. Um, and again, because your parents are supposed to provide and take care of you. So whatever's going on in your environment, you accept that as healthy and normal. Let's say even if you really do understand on some level that this is not good you don't know how, you don't really know how else to get out and provide for yourself. So you just accept it. Yeah. So I was going out, I was drinking. Um, and, and it really pissed me off because I, you know, I hated my mom for what she was doing. Like she was married, you know, to someone that I didn't have a good relationship with because he was physically abusing her. He was physically abusing me, but yeah, he was providing a really nice life for us. He was sending me and my brother to private school However, like I was seeing that she was cheating on him. There was a lot of open promiscuity in our house. And, but like when she would take me to downtown, I think that drinking was a way for me to kind of let go and release that. And also because my mom was doing, I was like, well, what else am I going to do? You know? So that was my first kind of, um, introduction. Yeah. Introduction to alcohol. Heavy, heavy, man. Ooh, okay. Well, I'm, listen, it's time for you to get started. I, I'm going to just turn this show over to you, Nikki. I mean, you, you're warmed up like times 10. <laughs> I want it all. I want it all. So folks, we're going to have a real treat today because Nikki's got like every conceivable addiction under her belt. So oh we're going to kind of weave it all in there together. So what I want you to do, Nikki, is I want you to, to share your story with us. The battle with all your addictions, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Nikki, take it away. Okay. Well, so if you want me to start back to when I was a child, parents divorced when I was two. Uh, my dad went to jail, and then I, uh, my mother remarried. Again, like I said, my mother remarried someone who was uh, uh, physically abused. Then I was sexually abused by a male figure. I, I you know, wasn't allowed to see my dad that much when I was growing up. And then, you know, so I lived with my mother and my stepfather and there was a lot, a lot of domestic violence and physical abuse. Um, however, like I was saying, because he worked hard, made a lot of money, um, I went to a private school and I think because of that, you know, the way things appeared on the outside versus what was really going on in our house. Um, you know, I, I was kind of bred to be an overachiever in school um, so having that perfectionist, uh, tendency and not, and feeling like I didn't have an outlet to, um, you know, say what was really going on, uh, being bred with a lot of fear, um, and shame, which happens a lot with 
child abuse, um, sexual abuse and eating disorders, you know, um, that's, that's what really, uh, I, I would say lit the fire for all of that. Um, so that, that just really continued, you know, until I was in my teens um, and all of the abuse and everything really just became worse and it, and it kind of came to a head. Um, the, the other thing was that in, in my house, there was, uh, there was that continued child, child abuse and child sexual abuse. Um, you know, my mother was, you know, I didn't realize that I was, uh, being sexually abused, uh, by my mom, um, because it was, you know, my, my normal, um, my mother was also sleeping around with the, they, they were swingers. Um, so there was like constantly, um, people coming over to our house, um, like younger boys, like probably college age and then even younger. And I didn't realize. Um, so I was like dealing with a lot of really heavy things and I didn't understand all of this. Um, I do now, you know, now that I've reached out and I work with Peaceful Hearts Foundation because we, we help survivors of child sexual abuse. But at the time, I didn't understand any of this. Um, so my mother was dealing with a lot with her dissociative identity. You know, having a, when you have a parent that has that, they have uh, different personalities that will come through. So it's really hard for them to take care of you um, and provide. Like there were many times when my mom would act like she was jealous of me or, you know, like she didn't know who I was. And then she wouldn't remember like an hour later, she wouldn't understand. Right. So that was really difficult. When I was 13, I was removed by the police from my house because the abuse was so bad. So I was sent to live with my dad who lived like 30 minutes away. Um, so I had to change all my life. I had to basically like say goodbye to my brother and you know, everything that I had known and go to a public school. And I was like, extremely introverted. I had my eating disorder that I was dealing with. We know that anytime you change your environment, uh, it, it really exacerbates disordered behavior, eating disorders, anything like that. You know, change is not good for someone who's dealing with an eating disorder. I know that it became much worse. You know, I started purging much more um, every day. And but I was trying to hide it from my dad. But that was really difficult because he lived in this really tiny old house um, in the countryside. So I didn't talk to anyone at school. I didn't reach out, you know, for a while. But I felt like such a loser because I didn't, I didn't like the way that I looked. I thought I was extremely ugly at the time. I was dealing with body dysmorphic disorder. Which do you, do you know what body dysmorphic disorder is? It's the first time I've heard of it. So please give us the details on that. So, by the way, if you guys ever want to read a great book about men and BDD, a really good friend of mine, Brian Cuban, his brother, Mark Cuban, he wrote an amazing book about body dysmorphic disorder. What's it called? Uh, Shattered Image. Okay. So, body dysmorphic disorder is when you take a perceived flaw. Like, you know, most of us, we yeah, we see something we don't like about ourselves in the mirror, but we can go out on about our day. But BDD is like, you know, when you see something about yourself in the mirror, but you become obsessed with it to the point where... Like you can't even leave your house or you get a ton of plastic surgery or, you know, you develop suicidal thoughts about wanting to end your life because you basically you see a distorted image. Some people see a monster in the mirror. I would like see a man or like I I thought I looked like a man. I thought like I was an animal. Like I I thought, you know, I wanted to kill myself because I couldn't 
I hated the person that I saw in the mirror. And that was directly linked to the sexual abuse that I had. A lot of so a good percentage, I would say, of the people who are have BDD have some sort of trauma in childhood. So I developed this war perception of myself. I remember I would like cry and tell my dad I look like a man. And he was like, you don't look like a man fool. <laughs> like, you know, we had that kind of relationship. He's like, what are you talking about? And he was like, but he thought it was like hormones, you know, because right. I was, I was like 13 and I was like, dad, no, you don't understand. And he, and, and I also thought it was hormones because it developed into this behavior pattern where I started to self harm. So I would stay, I would literally, you know, after school, I would come home and I would lock myself in the bathroom or in the bedroom. And I started to scream and cry because I didn't want to go. He, he would try to like, you know, get me to hang out with friends or introduce me to people. And I didn't want to go out. And all I could do was like obsessively put tons of makeup on my face and then wipe it off and then dye my hair. And, you know, like was trying to change myself into something else. And so I started to have really bad temper tantrums to the point where I would like literally bang my head against the wall, like trying to, you know, instead of cutting myself, I would bash my head in the wall. And I just remember thinking that I wanted to die and I would, I would, I was trying to kill myself. And still my dad thought that it was this kind of hormonal thing, you know, that I was having bad temper tantrums. However, uh, this was also around the time that I was having um, kind of hallucinations and delusions. So I would like see shadows. I would see things um, that weren't there. I would see what I would call ghosts and all sorts of things. Um, and I was hearing voices. I was hearing you know like people talking to me in my head. So I was having all of these kind of delusional experiences. And all this was kind of going on at the same time when I hit puberty. So... While all this was going on to me and, you know, I wasn't properly dealing with it, you know, I, I wasn't going to see a therapist, I wasn't doing all that, my mom was, um, she was com- committed to a mental institution, a mental facility, um, because she tried to commit suicide. So basically what I'm trying to say is that my mother's life and my life paralleled a lot. Um, and that's basically how it went for, you know, for most of my teenage life. Now, did she have the same body dysmorphic disorder? You know, I don't know if she had BDD. I do know, though, that she had an eating disorder because I clearly remember hearing her one day throwing up when when I lived with her. And that's the day that I actually started throwing up. And that's the day, like, I remember switching from binge eating to... Because I started, I started binge eating when I was eight years old. And then I started vomiting when I was 10. And I remember her one day so clearly like coming in just to check on her, um, you know, because she was like drinking a lot. And then she was sitting on the toilet with like a beer bottle. And then she got mad and she slammed the door in my face. And then I remember like running into my room crying and I heard her vomiting. And I thought, you know, I wonder what that's like. And I... I did it. And the thing is, is that with bulimia, it's highly addictive because it actually releases the similar endorphins in your brain as, you know, like drugs. And it, it's, it becomes like an addiction because you start to need to feel that high over and over again. So as my mother was kind of um, going through her problems with, with suicide, you know, I, I didn't know how I didn't know how to reach out to anyone. So my eating disorder really became like my best friend. 
and I, I was doing it, I would say at least five times a day at that point. And my grades really. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You were, so you, what you're saying is you were, you were purging five times a day. Yeah. Your throat must've been just thrashed. Yeah. But like the, the problem is that I, you know, I had been doing it for so long at that point. Like I just, when, when you go through trauma at such a young age, unfortunately, um, you get used to being not loved. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you get used to just kind of coasting through life and doing whatever you need to do to survive. It's like you, your mind gets out on survival mode. I was like so used to not having any sort of love for myself or any sort of self-care. I didn't even know what that was. I mean, after eight years old, I was just like, like a beast. I didn't understand any of that stuff anymore. I mean, on the out, and then the weird thing was that like everyone that knew me, no one knew that about me because I looked like I was so good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. People that have eating disorders or other similar uh, disordered behavior, you know, we, we become master manipulators. But on the inside, I mean, I was like completely different person. I knew how to hide it like you wouldn't believe. But when, you know, when it came to really loving and caring for myself, I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. I actually thought that loving and caring for myself was going and eating like 5,000 calories and then vomiting it in the toilet, you know? And I thought that loving and caring for myself then too, because I started to try to push, I started to try to at school, um, hang out with the popular kids. And of course, all they wanted to do was go out and drink. So then, you know, eventually I was like partying again. And then that led to doing drugs for the first time. So I say the first time I did drugs, uh, I was like, I was 13 or 14. And I didn't just, I, I knew marijuana, of course, you know, when I tried it, but then I thought like, this is a baby drug, you know, I don't want to, you know, it's like, okay, this is great. But like, I wanted to do, I, I had my first boyfriend and I thought, well, he does acid. I want to do acid. All I could think about was getting as high as I possibly could. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to go all the way. And when I drank, I remember the first party I went to with the kids at school and the popular kids. And I thought, I want to drink more than all the guys here. You know, I want to get as drunk as I possibly can because I want to, and I think in some way it was also about being the winner. Like, you know, I had this like really weird competitive attitude with, I don't know who I was competing with, but like, you know, <laughs> like the, the mind of a lonely, you know, repressed soul. Like, you know, I want to, but I want to be the best. But the best always woke up with this horrible hangover and sick as sick as hell. And but then I thought, oh, let's do it again and let's do it again. And then I started to have blackouts already, but I didn't care. When I was 16, I just decided I'm like I my self-esteem was already to the floor. And I was like, because um, that my mom had been committed to the mental institution twice already and I was like she tried to kill herself again and I was like well life I was like I'm good for nothing that's basically what I thought and I was like what am I gonna do you know how am I gonna survive because I think I felt like nothing I felt like life has nothing for me you know I felt like I'm just gonna kill myself or either I need to make money and, and be successful and I think I felt like I wanted to drop out of school so I went to this this uh, modeling school that was very prominent in my hometown. And there's been a few very famous uh, actors that have graduated from there and models. And they're like, 
yeah, we'll, we'll take you. You know, we have Broadway training classes that are coming up, um, but it's going to cost you $500. So they measured me and they, um, you know, they're like, can you, can you lose some weight, take some inches off and, and blah, 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 but just make sure you bring the 500 bucks. And I was like, okay. And they're, and they're like, can you bring your mom with you? And I'm thinking, shit, no, I can't because my mom's in the mental institution. What is that? I'm like, I'm not going to fit in with all these other chicks that are going to be here. So I go in there and, um, and anyway, so I do the walk and everything. And then the teacher, I swear to God, like, I'm thinking, man, I must really be a fucked up person, you know, because everything I do, like, is different. I just, I feel like a fucking alien. So, like, I go in there and she, when all the girls walk and they do everything perfectly and they're all wearing, like, these yoga pants and tummy bearing shirts and they all have, like, the same body type and their moms are all staring at me and, like, she lifts up my shirt. I was wearing, like, bell-bottom black pants, a ton of makeup. And like this white collared shirt and she lifts up my shirt and, you know, because I had been binge eating and, and throwing up all the time, your body gets like water weight. Your body's not going to be, um, where it's, where it should be. Yeah. It, because you're, you're bloated and she lifts up my shirt and there were like mirrors all around the room. I'm thinking, Oh my fucking God, just kill me now. Just kill me. Kill me. Kill me. And she lifts up my shirt and she's like, what kind of exercises do you do? And I'm like, dude, I don't exercise. I just <laughs> eat jelly donuts all day. Because I was working at a baker a bakery with my dad at the time. <laughs> and she's like, and she's like, you, you see their stomachs? And she pointed out the other models. She's like, you need to go home and do exercises. And, you know, you need to have stomachs like theirs if you want to have a chance to be signed by an agency. And I'm thinking, right, just get me the fuck out of here because I don't want to model anymore. Like, just get me out of here. This is not for me. So I quit. You know, I was like that experience of being, you know, um, zoned out in front of everyone and, and really being basically bullied. This sort of thing happens all the time in the modeling industry. The day to day things that happen in agencies and just with all these like Craigslist or Model Mayhem or Instagram, you know, sort of a free for all in the modeling industry where everyone can sign up and be a model. It's not regulated and a lot of people can, um, can be body shamed and raped or abused. I mean, you really have to be careful. So it, it was not a good experience and, and it just really exacerbated my, um, my eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. So I quit. However, a few years later, I ended up right back uh, being attracted to that industry because of the sexual trauma in my childhood. And this is something I still to this day, meaning the sexual trauma in my childhood, you know, it still has been the greatest challenge for me. So I would, I tried to go to college twice during that time, during those four years that I had off, and I failed out because of my eating disorder. Like I couldn't get a grip on it. I couldn't focus, couldn't study. So I ended up, you know, trying some like random jobs. I was actually a dancer at a club. I went, I had everything. I did everything from like trying to get my real estate license to being a dancer at a club. I mean, it was crazy. I was all over the place. And then I like would go on Craigslist. And this is so important for people to understand because you know how many girls and guys do. You know how many girls struggle with this a lot. And they do not talk about this. They would like go on, you know, so I would go on Craigslist and I, I would think like, this is all I'm good for. Or I didn't actually consciously think that, but subconsciously, this is what kind of, uh, um, drove me to do this. And I would like think, okay, man, I got to make money really fast because I need to pay my rent. Now, when we're talking about 
Craigslist. Are we talking about like legit modeling on Craigslist or are these? No, 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 no. I mean, this is before I signed my contract. So I'm, I'm just, and I'm talking about, and this is what is directly linked to the sexual trauma of my childhood. So this is what happened. So this is before I ever got into professional modeling. So there was this like period of time where I had like seriously no direction and I was, you know, really traumatized and terrified and you know, I was kind of like out there wandering in the nether regions of life, you know, trying to make my way. I had moved out from South Carolina, from Charleston, and I moved out to California. I had gotten married and then divorced in a year's time. And I was like sleeping with probably all of San Diego. Not really, but like I say that because it's really important for people to understand um, sometimes how survivors of child sexual abuse can behave. And that was really me for, I would say, a while. And I was really hurting. But, you know, I, I didn't understand how badly I was hurting. And it was a really extremely, extremely painful and dark time of my life. However, I thought that I thought that I was like in control. I thought that was a strong woman. I thought this was great. And I don't need anybody in my life. And, you know, and I'll just float around in the cloud all day. And, and I'll just eventually find my way into, you know, a career or something. So, but this happens a lot, a lot, you know, with young people that kind of grow up from broken homes and they don't have any direction. Unfortunately, this is extremely dangerous. I was like, what am I going to do to make money? I thought, I can't seem to, to um, you know, get through school. I can't seem to, to find a good job. It's like I tried to get my real estate license. I failed at that. And I didn't understand also that it was in large part because I wasn't going to therapy. I wasn't getting grabbed my eating disorder. I was, you know, I had danced at a club. And then I, I went on Craigslist and I searched the classifieds. And I was like, okay, I need to make easy money. Well, yeah, there's a lot of legitimate job listings, but there's also a lot of not legitimate job listings, right? such as when they used to have the adult section on Craigslist or the gigs section on there. So I was like, how can I make fast cash click? Oh, there's amateur modeling. Okay, so let me go on there. And hmm, oh, yeah, you'll pay me $200, $300, $150. Okay. Okay. So I would, I had this period where I, and I wrote about this in the book, where I um, would let random, the most random, nasty, shady people take pictures of my body parts for money. And then I took the money, and sometimes it paid my rent. Sometimes I pay my bills. Most of the time I didn't. Most of the time I took the money and I binged it. I purged it. Or I got drunk. And, and that's what I did. And then my dad would be like, oh, you got a bill here for your student loans. You're really behind here on your bills. Or my phone would be shut off. And so I was like falling extremely far behind in debt, you know, and, and I was just wasting my life away uh, as an addict. But I didn't see it that way. You know, we don't see things as they really are because we, we are blinded by our addictions. Eventually, I, I you know, I, I moved back home for a little bit and I kind of try to get my life back together. And then I moved back to California. When I moved back to California, um, I met a girl who was in the real fashion industry, um, not in the, the shady uh, Craigslist photographers. We actually became best friends, and she said, "You know, you could really be a real model." And I'm like, "What, really?" And she's like, "Because I was like, what? If people just want to see pictures of my boobs and put them," and she's like, 
<laughs> she's like, no, I'm serious. Like, you, you know, you really, you're really pretty. And I thought, well, like, man, because when I look in the mirror, I just see like a freak, you know, because I had this whole BDD thing going on. Right. But I didn't actually tell her that. And so anyway, she introduced me to this girl locally and I, who um, ran a magazine and I started to take pictures for this magazine. And then I started to do runway shows and design, designers uh, in, in San Diego would call me and they, I would do um, runway shows. And it really helped my confidence, you know, because I thought for the first time I was actually doing something worthwhile with my life, which is really sad, by the way. But, you know, it was the truth. So I was doing that for a little while. And then I think from that, uh, this manager in Los Angeles who worked in television, he, he um, called me and I moved to Los Angeles and I started to do TV for a little bit, um, hosting very, very small stuff like that. Because of that, it, it helped my confidence a bit. However, at the same time, I got a taste of what the entertainment business was like in the way that, um, you know, they wanted me to change, get plastic surgery on my nose, you know, change my nose. Like, you can't work in TV. You can't do movies and stuff like that unless you get a nose job. That was brought up all the time. And, and so because I wasn't dealing with my mental health issues and, going to recovery like I should have been, I, I didn't deal with the criticism in the right way. Because like, for example, everyone who works in Hollywood, they all hear that stuff, you know, all the time. Um, but I think maybe if I would have been, you know, going to see a therapist, maybe I could have handled it in a different way. Um, however, I was dealing with it by like, you know, I would, I would go shoot with, with crew and then like, I would go home and eat like an enormous amount of food and then throw it up and then do it again and again and again. Or, you know, I would self harm or do something horrible. And, um, that's not, you, you can't have any sort of quality of life like that. And you can die. Yeah. You can actually die one time purging. You know, I, I work with uh, the national eating disorder association. I've been working with them for four times and, and they get like, an insane amount of calls every day from parents who have lost, you know, their children, their child, or their, their loved one to an eating disorder. It actually takes one time of purging to die. It's a miracle, you know, that I didn't die. Well, especially for as long as you were doing it and for how many times a day, it was just, you know, a true addict. Yeah, a true addict. So, so I, I mean, I, I, I liked doing TV because I actually did have a journalism background from high school. I was doing editorial team on, uh, in my senior year. And, and I, again, when I was a kid, I, when I was in third grade, I wrote a book, like my first book was a little book. So I liked doing that, but, um, I wanted to do, I, I still wanted to do modeling, but my manager was like, you're too old to do modeling. So I thought, well, screw you. <laughs> so I fired him. And then <laughs> I, I fired him. And then I sent out my pictures, had my boyfriend at the time take Polaroids at me. And then um, we sent them out to a bunch of different agencies. I did get a few responses back from some of the best agencies actually in the world. I was really shocked. But, you know, of course, the requirements were to lose weight. And it's always like that. That's That's how... Because the industry is not regulated, and again, I don't want to say any of this to bash in you know any anyone in the modeling industry because I'm not about that. I think that um, 
the industry could be an amazing place to work, but I think that it could be restructured a bit. So it, it was like, we really want you to come here and work, but um, you got to, you know, you need to lose weight. And that's just the way that they control and manage the models because it's not regulated because you're an independent contractor and you're not an employee. So they can get away with saying that stuff. So I, you know, at the time, because I had a vulnerable mind, because I wasn't, uh, you know, strong minded, which mental health issues are not anyone's fault. You know, it's not uh, something you can control. I resorted to overtime. Like I over exercise. I think I was like exercising four hours a day. But then I started to binge on diet pills. I mean, I was like really, really triggered, you know, and, um, I lost the weight and I lost a lot of weight and I made sure I did it, you know, like a soldier. And then when I went there, um, I looked different cause I lost a lot of weight. And, um, so I started to work and the first agency that I signed with, they freaking closed down. Like they had been in business for 20 years. I did a few jobs and then they, they went out of business. So like, I didn't get any of my money. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> like Dude, it just does. It's brutal. And then so I'm thinking, gee, I'm thinking like, God dang it. So the person who had scouted me was like, it's okay. You know, I have an agency here that um, I know for sure they'll take you. And I'm like, okay, what agency is that? So it ended up being a better agency and one of the best agencies. Like, I'm not going to say the name, but it's, you know, everyone knows this agency and it's one of the best in the world. So I'm like, oh, yeah, of course I want to go there. You know, I'm thinking like money, fame, stars in my eyes. And I want to be a supermodel. That's all I could think about. I want to be a Victoria's Secret model. You know, the stupid thing that like every, every girl thinks about. And I was extremely vain and obsessed with being in that league of whatever it means. It doesn't mean anything. I thought if I sign with this agency, I'm going to be a Victoria's Secret model. And then my whole life is going to make sense and everything is going to be complete. And that's all I was thinking about. You know, I didn't have any education. I, I wasn't, um, I, I didn't understand how much value I had on the inside. So I thought, yeah, let's go. So I went there and um, the owner, the director of the agency was like madly flirting with me. On, you know, he had this casting at his house with like 13 other girls. They did have their moms there. Of course, my mother wasn't there. But this was in Miami, you know, and things were in Miami and the modeling. It's not like in New York. Things are sometimes not done in the way they should be. So it was like at his house. And then he picked the girls who wanted to be at the agency and and they signed us. And I thought, oh, my God, I am a supermodel now. <laughs> That's what I thought. I literally was like, you know, it's a high you get when you do drugs. That's what I was on. And I have not done any drugs. <laughs> I was like. Yes, I'm amazing. And this was before Instagram or any of that stuff. I really thought I was a shit. And, you know, it, and the bad thing about that is that when you, and it's kind of like, it really, it was like a workaholic, you know, because when you put your everything into your work and you put all your faith into work and money and success, it is bad because there's no higher power there, right? There's no, there's no stability. There's no middle that's going to keep you grounded. And so I put all of my faith and my trust and everything into that, which got me into a lot of trouble because I let everyone, I let my agency, I let my agents, I let, um, you know, all, all these people control and abuse me because that's really the way that they manage models. 
And it's not just me saying that. It's You can look up. It's many other models who say that. And unfortunately, because I wasn't grounded, because I didn't have that spiritual center, because I wasn't educated, um, I wasn't balanced, I, I really let that world control me. Eventually, you know, I did obtain a lot of success, but it came at a very high price. And, um, you know, I, I was raped. Um, you know, I would attend these model dinners that they have where like all the models come together, but not all the models, but like whoever is invited. And you, you do feel this like pressure to be, to attend these dinners because, again, it's not regulated, right? So it's not like at a corporate job where you go or even at a normal job where you go and you know that you put in your hours and you, you know, you work with educated people and you do things a certain way. I mean, it's just like a free for all, you know? And so at these dinners, there's older men, there's photographers, there's, and it's kind of like socializing. And there are agencies who have escorted their models out, you know, and it's kind of like, so you go there and you hang out and you know that if you go home with this person, you're probably going to get a better booking or so it's just really horrible the way things work. But at the time, I didn't think it was horrible because of my background of the way I was raised the way I was brought up. So that's kind of like all I had known. And even if yes, on an intellectual level, I knew I was also a product of trauma. So because I hadn't been through any sort of recovery yet, I I was I think I was just doing the best with what I had at the time, you know. And um, I I think that's what a lot of I think that's what we're all doing. We we all do the best with what we with what we have. However, you know, there was a time where where I was invited to a um, to a lunch at the director's house. And I was told that it was going to be a casting you know, however, when I got there, it was not a casting and it was just the photographer there with the director and his girlfriend. And by the time I left much later that evening, I, I was, I realized that I had been raped. So there are very dangerous situations that can happen. There was a lot of sexual harassment. It was like every single day that I was told that I wasn't good enough and I need to constantly lose weight. Or then it was like, I was, uh, too, too thin. You know, you are, like literally when you, when you go to a shoot and you see your images, there were some times when the photographers who were also my friends too, would like laugh and tell me, Oh, like, okay, now we're going to take this picture and we're going to put you on a diet or, you know, let's take about 20 pounds off of you. And they would like, so I think that when you are, you know, even for a, no, a person who, who might not have mental health issues, it, it probably would reduce your self-esteem a bit. But, but even if, so if you are, you know, dealing with mental health issues, and, and, you know, I didn't realize the severity of my mental health issues. It really had a huge impact on me. But by the time, so I eventually left that agency because of the, um, the sexual abuse issues that happened. Um, and I moved to New York and I started to work. And New York was really hard uh, just because of the fashion industry up there. It's very tough. And my weight, you know, it was always kind of came back to my weight because I was a healthier look. And at that time, I think that was like 2010. 2011, you know, and the business is always changing and they just didn't like my size. They wanted like a super, 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 super thin girl. And I also got pregnant (laughs) and I didn't know I was pregnant. It's like the never ending saga. And I didn't know I was pregnant. So like what happened is I went to the doctor and, uh, so this is what happened. So I noticed that I was gaining weight. My agent said, you're getting weight all over. So my agency at that time had also 
told my mother that, um, you know, they had heard that I was throwing up. So it had been brought up to the attention that I, they said, you, if you don't, if you don't go to recovery, we're going to drop you from our agency. So my mom said, you need to go to therapy. So for the very first time, I actually did go to therapy, um, in 2010. So what happened is I was seeing a therapist who was very good, by the way. And I was, you know, I also went to 12 step for the first time then. And this was for the food disorder. This is, yeah, this is for the food disorder. Okay. So they knew that you were purging and they needed you to to straighten that out. Yeah. And it was helping me a lot. Okay. And it was like a overeaters anonymous, that sort of thing. Right. But it was helping me a lot. And, And I also, at that time I went to a psychiatrist, I was getting on medication for bulimia. Actually, what I take is, um, anti convulsants that, which strangely, um, interestingly helps for bulimia. However, as soon as I started to see the, um, therapist, I was like starting to gain weight. And I thought it was because like I was trying to start to eat, you know, and get on a healthy schedule because I was sober. I was sober for purging. So I told my agency, well, maybe it's just because of that. And my therapist said, why don't you go see a gynecologist, you know, just to kind of get checked out. And I thought, I don't want to do that because someone who's been sexually traumatized, it's like the worst thing. You know, we never want to go to the car. Right. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then she's like, no, this would be the best thing ever for you. Trust me. This is a huge step in recovery. And I'm like, okay. You know, waving a little recovery flag in my heart. And I'm like, okay. And so I go to the gynecologist and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Nikki, this is great for you. You're like making a huge stride in your life, you know, (laughs) one step at a time. (laughs) So I go back in there. And this doctor starts flirting with me. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and he goes like, oh, you're a model. I can see that. And I'm thinking like, what the hell did you just say, motherfucker? <laughs> and he's like, sorry for my language. But as a person who's been traumatized, like that's the last thing you want to say. You want to feel safe and comforted in the doctor's office. Did you actually say that? No, but I'm thinking that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Because that would have been really a strong step. <laughs> Yeah, but I a know. good. But I would have said that it's a positive. I would have said positive. You know what I mean? Like you're standing up for yourself. Well, let me tell you something. Now, if he does that, I'm like Medea. You know who Medea said this? Because let me tell you something. If you mess with me now, I will straight up smack you to the other side of the room. And I will call you back. You don't want to mess with me now. But at the time, I was like really timid, you know. So I just I made it in there. That was a big step for me. But he, so he, you know, he hoists me up in the chair. And he like, you know, and he had, there was a nurse in there, but you know, you have your like legs up in the air and you're just like in a very weird position. And he like, you know, he starts examining me and everything. And then he's like, oh, can you, we need to bring the ultrasound machine. And I'm thinking like, why do you need to bring the ultrasound machine? And he's like, well, you may have some cysts in there. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, maybe so. Because my mom had a problem with this. Well. And then he's like, well, no, it's not cysts. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and he's like, oh no, but you're pregnant. <laughs> What the? Oh my god! I'm like, I have made it now. I'm officially fucked on my life. Oh my god! But that's not. But that wasn't such a bad thing. I was 25. I mean, I was like older. Right. And I'm like, what the heck? Who? Okay, what? And so, um. So that's the thought. The first thought was who? I can't believe I just said that. You just said that. And I was like, okay, so ooh. No, I mean, I knew. I know. I knew who it was. I knew who it was, but. I'm just kind of talking as I go here. But yeah, 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 I know I knew who it was. And it happened to be, you know, someone that I didn't want to be with. It was an abusive person in a relationship that I did. I explained this in the book. You know, it it was an abusive person that I 
was seeing who was a um, a good friend of the uh, director of the agency that I had just left in Miami. So I was I was not making good relationship decisions at that time. You know, um, again, everything was a product of not dealing with the um, sexual trauma in my child. So make a very long story short, in the, in the end, I went to my, I consulted with my mother who, you know, was like, you need to have the child. I consulted with my agency and my agency was like pushing abortion. And I, in the end, decided to have an abortion. Did I want to have an abortion? No, I did not want to have an abortion. I felt pressured at in that particular time by my career and by my mental illness, to tell you the truth. Like I was not in a very good place in my mind. And, um, after, after that happened, I lost a lot of weight, like a lot of weight. It actually triggered my addiction and I started to abuse laxatives. However, after that happened, my agency, the same agency who had like persuaded me to have an abortion, they actually dropped me from my contract and didn't even tell me, Jesus. which happens all the time. So, I actually went to Europe. I started to model. And because I was so skinny, my weight was like fluctuating a bit. So I like started to travel all over the world at that time. I uh, was modeling. And um, some places they would turn me down, like Paris, they hated me. Uh, you know, Israel, they didn't like me. Uh, Spain, they loved me. And um, so I was working there a lot. My grandmother and my mom, you know, they were like getting very, they were getting very sick. Uh, my grandmother died. Um, when my grandmother died, I dealt with the grief by, um, I think I just stopped eating. And, and that was in, uh, 2012, the beginning of 2012. And so actually, so when that happened, um, I started to work more and all of the, uh, all of the agencies were calling me more (laughs) and my career started to climb higher than ever, uh, in Europe at least. And, um, I developed anorexia though. So I probably got down to, you know, I don't want to say a specific number, but, um, it wasn't in the triple digits. It was in the double digits. Oh man. Yeah. And, um, but the thing is, is that because the modeling industry isn't educated about mental health, not at least not currently, they're pushing me, you know, and they're like, you look amazing. Uh, no, but really, and the same agency in Paris who had, uh, told me, we don't want you here. They were calling my agency in Spain. They're like, oh, can you? They actually, at first, they didn't recognize me for my pictures. They're like, who is that? And they're like, that's Nikki. And they're like, no, that's not Nikki. You know? um, then they're like, can you send her back uh, to come work? But I was so, like, in private, I was uh, only allowing myself to eat. Like, I, I had this weird, like, it's not weird, but sometimes with anorexia, what can occur is, like, OCD. So I had my mind, like I was hearing those voices again, you know, that occur with psychosis. And the voices were telling me, like, you can only eat red apples. So, like, I was only allowing myself to carry around red apples and, like, nothing else, no matter what I was working. So I was starving myself. I was still taking my medication for the bulimia. But, like, sometimes I would binge and purge that, too. Like, I was doing really weird things. My hair was falling out. I was vomiting blood. But I thought I thought that I looked, you know, amazing. So, like, the BDD had me in such a way where the thinner that I was, I would say the better I looked. In your, in your own mind. Yeah, in my, in my own mind. Um, but still, 
like, for example, when I would see pictures of myself, I could only see the imperfections, the imperfections, the fat, like on, on myself, even though it literally would just be a bone, I could still only point out the fat. And, and it got to a point where, um, my mother, um, became extremely sick with the alcoholism because she had at that point been an alcoholic probably, you know, since I was a kid. Um, but after her, her adopted mother, my grandmother had passed away. She kind of fell off the wagon and she would go off missing for, you know, in the woods, like literally would like run out, run away from home. And, um, the police would like find her. And I think it was also, you know, her bipolar and dissociative identity disorder flaring up. So she would go missing. And like, you know, I'm in another country working and I get these like Skype calls from her boyfriend um, telling me, you know, like we can't find your mom. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, and I'm trying to deal with this stress. Um, or I get a call like, you know, your mom's been in a car accident. Um, like she would, she would, um, go like she, she was really super alcoholic like she would um get in the car drunk and go flip her car and then leave it in the ditch and like hitch a ride with a stranger and um and then come home and say no I haven't been drinking like she would completely deny that the car you know that she had just gotten in the car I I knew that I had to do something about my mom's um you know what what was going on with her I mean, now I understand that, you know, you can't really do something for someone when they're having an addiction. But at the time, I didn't understand that. And, and uh, but I was also really suffering, you know, with my, with my own health. And this is 2012. This is 2012. Um, my career was going better than ever. And I was thinking like, yeah, I'm going to move back to New York. I wanted to sign with like the biggest agency in New York, you know, and I was thinking about that BS contract and um, all this stuff, you know. At the same time, like my mom was having this huge problem and, and I was having a problem, but I really didn't see the depth of my problem. So when they were calling me about my mom, I knew I had to do something. And so I consulted with my family, with my dad and my brother, and we decided that we needed to have an intervention. So I, I flew back home and uh, we had the intervention with her. Um, when I saw my mom, you know, because before that, I hadn't seen her in, say, a year, year and a half. And when I saw her, I literally didn't recognize my mom because she, I, I guess, it, you know, it was due to all the binge drinking. She, at the time when I saw her, she was living in a house with an enabler. And um, she, like, stumbled out with no shoes on, like, a dirty shirt. And her hair was all messed up. And I'm thinking... You know, and because when I was a kid, like, and my mom was so beautiful, you know, she's like, she was actually a very, very beautiful woman. And um, I always admired my mom when I was a kid. When I saw her, I realized, oh, my God. And at that moment, I just, I just, um, I mean, I don't know what happened to me, but it was really shocking. She stumbled out. She didn't recognize me. And well, we got her and we, we took her to, um, my brother and I took her. And that was a big ordeal anyways, because she was living in a house with a guy who had a gun. You know? So my brother and I had to like strategically remove her from the house. We took her to this hotel and we were able to get her to a safe place. And she did finally, I mean, it took a really long time and like a lot of just discussion and, and trying to negotiate with her for her to, you know, to, to realize 
that she needed help. So we did get her detox to the hospital. And after like two days, they kicked her out of the hospital because she didn't have insurance. And then she did agree to go to this, this place. My brother and I paid for her to go to this, um, this amazing, these, these people are amazing. Not the facility is amazing, but just the people, um, this place called Ashley Hope in Charleston. So I spent about two weeks with her. And I say the two weeks that I spent with her was the best I've ever had in my life because she was finally sobering up. Right. She was there for 60 days. What was weird was that like when I was in Spain, when I was in Europe, I started to have like these hallucinations again. And my um, mom's boyfriend was also telling me that my mother was too. Like she was seeing these weird shadows again and stuff like that. And the, like people with bipolar disorder, they have that. But we were both seeing that. One day I had this like really weird, I, I still don't know if it was hallucination or if it was real, but I, I had this like vision of a Grim Reaper and I heard a voice telling me that my mom was going to die. The next day I got a phone call that my mom had left the facility and two weeks later my mom died. Oh man. So yeah, it was really weird. She died, you know, due to binging and drinking with her enabler that got in the car, you know, drunk driving accident. So when my mom passed away, it, it really was the turning point for me. Um, and I do want to quickly reference that. Yeah, when I was modeling um, in Europe, uh, I was using drugs a lot. I was like, you know, doing cocaine. I was doing a lot and probably in more than ever uh, ecstasy, everything, I mean, everything. And so when my mom died, I really woke up, but I had to choose to wake up, you know, because like I probably had like 50,000 rock bottoms and like, <laughs> so I mean, really, you know, I was constantly like on the shit floor and I can't even tell you how many people have reached out to me and they're like, you were a shit show. So it's like, what was it about that? That made me finally decide to get better. I, I think that, um, it just, I never expected for that to happen. Although my mom really was sick for a really long time, it, it just woke me up and I just never expected that to happen. And I realized at that moment, because when she went to the, um, to the, uh, sober house, they gave me a, um, AA book and I started to read it a little bit, a little bit. And I realized that, um, I'm really in a big mess here. And I just believe that sometimes, you know, God allows things to happen that can be for our good, but we have to choose for it to be for our good, you know? And unfortunately, like the book is called Darkness to Light. So unfortunately, my mother's darkness was my light. Um, and I made that step to to get better, to get healthier, because when I saw my mom lying in the casket, it literally scared the piss out of me. And I was like, I do not want to be in that casket. Right. You know? My mom, but if I don't make the decision to get better, I'm going to be like that really soon. So I've been sober for five years and I've been free, thank God, from an eating disorder for almost four years. I've never been, you know, free and clean from eating disorder for, for that long ever in my life. So I, I'm just living my life one day at a time. <laughs> when you have all these different, I guess what they would call a dual diagnosis, it's this roller coaster ride of what do I use next? And yeah. you one coping one you use one or you're using them all as coping me mechanisms to overcome another one, but it's one dysfunctional behavior trying to overcome another one. Yeah. So in the end, it was your mother passing away that ultimately helped you 
that was your rock bottom. Yeah, which which also though um, when my mom passed away, it, it it set me on the path to say I need to get help. And when I decided to get help, you know, I um, ended up moving to the back to the U.S. I I did end up get, getting in a very healthy relationship for the first time, and that also helped me to to take time off. I left. I ended up leaving the modeling industry which was a huge, huge trigger at that time in my life, you know, for everything that I was going through. So I got into a, um, you know, a 12 step program for the food. Um, I had a mentor who was extremely crucial. So I am all for, you know, getting a a mentor, a good person in your life. It didn't cost me anything. You know, I, I had a mentor who worked with me for about two years she worked with me through the Life Recovery Bible and work, Workbook, which I highly recommend, because what that did for me was it, it kind of highlighted all the things in my life that could be out of balance, you know? And I was like out of balance in work. I was out of balance in um, sexual addiction. I was out of balance in um, uh, drugs and alcohol and, and the food, you know, and the way I perceived myself. You know, I had very low self-esteem. And just in everything, you know, and I needed that spiritual balance. So at first it started with the food, but once I got a mentor, um, you know, someone who would take the time with me every day and really instilled that spirituality back into me, that spirituality became my confidence and helped me to tackle all the different areas of my life that really needed to be tackled. And, and, but still to this day, of course, that's something that, you know, I have to make the effort. I have to be responsible for, you know, working through every single day. It, it's not just like you go and you, you know, you're like, okay, now I'm done. You no, know, now I can no. Go. <laughs> you have to work on it. Every day, every day. It's an ongoing process. Yeah. And and so you worked your steps through the, through OA? I go back to this Life Recovery Bible, which is a 12-step program. However, um, the different... 12 step programs that I that I'll go to a meeting, let's say, would be OA, would be SL, you know, Sex and Love Addicts. Yeah, those are the two. Those are the two, and then AA. Those are the three main. Those are still part of your of your lifestyle today, which is yes. you know you need the which which makes sense. Yes. So the 2011 rock bottom. What was that bottom that you hit to come off of uh, the drugs and alcohol? Yeah, so I, I had a boyfriend at the time who was a very uh, prominent person. So he kind of, uh, his lifestyle mixed in with my own lifestyle of being, you know, a model and traveling all over the place. We were really, you know, afforded everything you could imagine. Right. So we were on a trip um, around the southern coast of Italy, and he his uh, friends had a yacht, a big yacht. We had a, a chef on the yacht. In the day. I mean, like the very first second I stepped onto there, you know, they introduced me to the chef and I'm like thinking, oh, yes, this is amazing because I can have whatever I want. Right. So I started to like, I snuck into my room and waited till, you know, they were, you know, out there on the sun deck or whatever. And I started, I ordered like pot, you know, a lot of food. And I, I, I think the first thing I did basically was like binge and purge. And I thought, you know, I thought that I could hide it. I thought they could, of course, how could I think they couldn't smell the vomit, you know? But when you are sick, you don't think about these things. Right. And so I would do that constantly, however, not realizing that um, they were probably noticing and probably getting very pissed off about it. The other thing was that 
we were partying all the time, you know, pulling into all these different ports, partying a lot and partying with like celebrities and partying with, you know, dignitaries and all these crazy, crazy, crazy parties. But out of all the people at these parties, who do you think was the craziest one? You were. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so like, you know, I was the one I'm talking, let's think like politicians that, you know, like really dignified people or supposedly dignified people. And I'm sitting there in my, I don't know how much it costs dress. And I get up on the table with my, probably my 10th martini and I start screaming. And that's all I remember. And then the security guard carries me out. And um, I do that after X. And at first it's funny. Like everyone thinks it's funny. Like, oh, do you remember last night when you, you know, did did that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's funny. But then what happened is that um, the last night, I, uh, apparently I got so plastered that, um, I completely destroyed, like I literally destroyed the ship vomiting everywhere. And then I started to assault my boyfriend and called him an abuser. And like, so I was, um, turning against people because I was so drunk to the point, you know, to where I became the attacker and I was vomiting everywhere, you know, and so and ruining everything. And they ruined the whole party. So all I remember is like being on the floor at some point on the ship and having like 10 people hovering over me (laughs) and they were yelling at me and they were telling me, you know, I want her off of my ship. And I'm like scared. (laughs) I'm like, and then I black out. And then the next day I'm thinking like, oh my God, what did I actually do? (laughs) You know, and I'm thinking like, what is wrong with me? You know, I can't believe, like, why can't I just be normal? Like, why can't I just, I, th- I remember thinking, like, why can't I just be, like, you know, someone else had a girlfriend on there, and she was, like, so pretty and, like, perfect looking, and I'm thinking, like, why can't I just eat a normal meal and, like, enjoy a nice glass of champagne and just be normal? You know, why do I have to, like, get on here and eat, like, a whole refrigerator? Why? Why do I have to be the freak? Like, I remember always feeling like I was a freak, you know, and like I couldn't manage or control anything in my life. And now everybody, I felt like, oh my God, everybody knows my secrets. And now everybody's going to tell. And it's going to be the whole topic of conversation. And I'm just, I'm just a fuck up. That's what I And then in the next morning, they're like, you need to get out. You need to get off because you threw up everywhere. You were telling so-and-so, you know, that he abused you, that he's an abuser. You were cursing at everybody. <laughs> like, oh my God, how could one person like have so many you know, I don't even remember any of this. The last thing I remember was I was just like dancing and having a good time and drinking tequila shots. But I ruined I ruined the whole party of like 200 people or something. So after that, you know, when I had a clear mind, when we were going back to the shore, I said, I'm calling my agency and I'm going back to, uh, to Paris. And I said, I'm never touching another drink again. And I actually never touched another drink again. Wow. So that one you almost did straight, straight up. <laughs> I will never forget that because when I, it embarrassed me, shamed me, and it traumatized me so bad. I mean, I will never forget like being on the floor of that ship and like having all these people standing on top of me, screaming at me, like, you're a bitch, you fucking bitch, like you ruined my part. Like it, it, it really, really, because also then everybody, everybody knew about what I had done and like knew all my secrets. Right. Like imagine like, you know, everybody knows. You know. So I, I just, I realized that this whole facade, this whole mask that I put on 
was um, it was out in the open. And I right. thought, oh my god, I gotta get help right now. <laughs> oh my god, gotta clean that up. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I never touched with a drink or drug again. Wow, wow, it's just it's just amazing. <laughs> the craziness, the absolute craziness. <laughs> so then, the the book. When did you start writing the book? I started writing the book about two years ago. It took me about two years. Yeah. Okay, so then this is two years into your recovery from the food addiction from your, yeah, I guess you would call it food addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And it really helped me to continue to stay on the, on the straight and narrow. Okay. So then what was your recovery journey like in those first couple of years? It was all over the place, you know, because recovery is really not a straight line for, for many things, you know, especially eating disorders because I had had the eating disorder since I was eight years old. I had no idea how to eat. So coming from a perspective of, you know, at that time, a 27-year-old woman who was just learning how to eat, I, I didn't understand anything about food. I actually had, you know, a bit of OCD. So when I would think about food, I had those voices telling me, you can't touch that, don't touch that, don't do that. You know, it got to the point where, like, I, I would, like, even have to put food on certain plates or eat with certain silverware or what's which can be common with um, anorexia recovery and things like that. So um, the very first time I ate or put anything in my body without doing any sort of behaviors, it, I had to go get a juice. And I remember at the time, I, um, you know, my boyfriend was with me um, because I, I did home care, which means I stayed at home and, and recovered. I, I went and got a, uh, you know, a green juice, a healthy juice, started very small with that. And I remember thinking actually that like my head was going to explode, like something which is combined with OCD. So I, I thought that like if I drink this juice, something terrible is going to happen. But I, I drank it and um, I, hid, I hid in the bathroom, <laughs> in the bathroom because I didn't understand. And I was like, I, I'm 20, I was 27 at the time. <laughs> Imagine, you know, and I'm like looking at myself in the mirror <laughs> and I started crying. But nothing happened, you know, nothing bad happened. I'm still here. My head's still intact. And nothing bad happened. I got through it. And the world didn't end, you know. So, but I started with that. And then I worked through a plan with my mentor. You know, um, I dealt with the emotional, the underlying issues with the therapist and the mentor and and the spiritual aspects, which really helped. I, I would also, like, write positive notes and put them on the mirror, you know, things like that, say like, you know, I'm worthy, I'm special, all these sort of things um, to help build up my self-esteem at the same time that I was like tackling the underlying issues. You know, forgiveness was a big part of that. I, I wrote out letters to all the people to my past I, and I forgave myself. You made amends. Yeah, I made amends. I actually met up with some of the people from my past and I told them I was sorry. Because I, I didn't realize like how my behavior was affecting other people. You know, at the same time that I sent out a letter to like, for example, I sent out a letter to my stepfather. But then at the same time, I asked him for forgiveness, which is like sounds so weird to people like will never understand. But it, it does make sense because there's it's a two sided coin. You know, when when you are um even when you are traumatized, yes, that's not right. But at the same time, when you also become an addict, your life greatly affects people and you don't realize how it affects people. So it, it's, it's for you, you know, it helps you to let go 
of the pain that causes you to continue to hurt yourself, which is really important in the healing process. So that really helps me to stop the behaviors um, and it helped me to grow and, and, and to heal. So with food, it was very much baby steps and it was a lot of like one step forward and two steps back, you know. I went from juices to solid foods. And at the same time, I became educated about healthy food, you know, and just about food in general. And, and, and eventually got into like an intuitive eating cycle, I think. With exercising, because I was also a compulsive exerciser, I just learned just that I didn't need to be on a any sort of exercise schedule, you know. Um, that I just needed to treat my body. I just needed to treat myself with care and love and just do whatever I wanted to do because it was good for me, not because someone else told me to be a certain way. So I, I don't, now I don't have like any restrictions on food. I just eat whatever I want and it's more an intuitive thing. And I really believe that the body will just tell you what it wants to eat. Um, but as far as for food, I just, I really just enjoy food and, and I don't worry about it too much anymore. No, no, it doesn't sound like it. And then, of course, the underlying sexual trauma and the sexual abuse. Did you work through that? Because sometimes working one program, especially since the eating was such a big factor, working the steps through those or working with a mentor also helps you work through all the other issues. For example, like the, like the sexual trauma. Were you able to work through that through that program or was it a different program? Yeah, so... I so I recently just did a podcast with uh, the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Do you know that podcast? Yep. Um, so and that's hasn't been out yet. We did a heavy, <laughs> super detailed into sexual addiction. Um, th- for me, that really has been my biggest challenge. You know, and and that's so hard for me to say because again, there's that fear and that shame attached to that. But it's good that I am honest and transparent about that. You know, working with Peaceful Hearts Foundation helping survivors of child sexual abuse. I'd say one of the biggest challenges for survivors is being open and honest and um, not having that shame. That's, that's my mission is to help survivors not have that shame. I, my, my goal, my resolution for the end of this year, going into next year and all for next year is to, to be more into sex and love addicts anonymous, you know, so that I can get a really strong grip on recovery, I think because I worked so hard on getting the eating disorder under control, you know, the eating disorder had a huge grip on my life for over 17 years. So now that I really feel that I have a good grip on that, I want to get a good grip on the um, sex and love addicts anonymous, you know, because it, it does. It really, it really has an influence in my life and I don't want it to, um, I feel like there's always got to be something that has an influence on our life, you know, um, and definitely that's that's still something that I do have a challenge with, um, and I want to get a, a grip on that. Absolutely. All right. Well, Nikki, we have been on this interview for an hour <laughs> and a half, so um, we're going to start to close down because <laughs> it's true. There was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> But it's it's one of these things where the the story is the story, right? The story yeah. is the story. And for some, there's not as much. And for some, there's just so many aspects of it that 
you almost have to go into each and every one to get the full picture. So I'm glad you did. There's so many takeaways from this, the sex aspect of it, the modeling aspect of it, the drug abuse aspect of it. It's all combined into one. And the good news is that you can recover, um, but you can't do it alone. You didn't do it alone. No. We didn't do it alone. <laughs> we need support. We absolutely need support. Absolutely. You can't do it alone. The great thing about it is I do believe you can fully recovered. And there's always someone out there who wants to help you. All you have to do is reach out. So I hope you can you know, take that step and reach out if you're struggling. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's close down. I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery. And I want you to respond with inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? I'd say what was keeping me from getting clean um, when I first got introduced to recovery was just the fear, you know, and the shame. And also my ego, pride. Pride is a big thing and ego is a big thing, you know. And also because it was, it was, it was all I had ever known, you know, from right. staying clean. It was all I had ever known. It was my lifestyle. So I felt comfortable. I felt like my best friend versus uh, recovery being my best friend. Yeah, it's, it's so foreign. It's so different. You know, what's going to happen when I have to make like big changes in my life? Big fear yeah. in there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening? That aha moment in recovery when you accepted you were powerless over your addictions, but for the first time had developed a hope that you could recover. Yeah, definitely. That when I had that first spiritual awakening, it was in 2010. The first time when I went to when I decided to go to recover, um, when I did go to a 12 step program. Even though I did have a relapse after that, I will tell you that I did have that um, that hope that I could recover when I went to my first meeting. You know, and I saw the hope in other people's eyes, and they offered that hope to me. And I did get a sponsor for a bit. I I, I did feel the presence of God in my life. And I was thirsty for that. I was actually hungry for that. I was more hungry for for God in, in my life than I was for drugs, alcohol, for, um, for binging, purging. I think that based on just what we've learned, what I've learned over the years, is that we're all seeking that connection with God or yeah. the higher power, whatever, whatever form or shape it takes in our lives. That's what we're seeking. And we're constantly trying to fill it with external things when the reality is, you know, we are all just seeking that spiritual connection, whether or not we know it or admit it or want to admit it or want to live in denial about it. Uh, once you get to where we're at without it, we're, we're basically hopeless. But absolutely. 100% I know I'm absolutely nothing without God, who is my higher power. I'm absolutely nothing. And if you want to, I mean, he's proven it to me 50,000 times because I've been on the bottom 50,000 times. So I know that I am nothing without him. Yep, absolutely. So now you had mentioned a few books. So my third question is, do you have a favorite book? I'm going to say for you, do you have favorite a few favorite books that you would recommend to our newcomers uh, that you read in early recovery or that you would recommend in general? Well, there's a yeah, there's there's a lot of great books. I would say for for guys, like I mentioned before, and really for girls too, but um, definitely from a guy's perspective on body dysmorphic disorder, there's Shattered Image by Brian Cuban, great book. Um, also, it's about eating disorders from a male's perspective, depression. I, I read a really good book uh, super early in recovery, 2010, I think, um, called When Food Is Love by Janine Roth. It just kind of explores yeah the relationship aspect, you know, in your body and. Um, 
I it's also as a friend of mine, Jenny Schaefer. She's written really a few good books, uh, almost anorexic. I want to check her out. Okay, and then of course, of course, your book. Yes, of course, my book, Washed Away from Darkness to Light. If you don't go check out my book, I will come and hunt you down, and I will hang you by your toe, just like my grandma used to say on the clothesline. And trust me, when I say that because I'm really, I'm really freaky, man. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> and that's one way to get your book sales high up on Amazon, right? <laughs> um, no, and a really good book, a really good book from a friend of mine she's she's a friend of mine from Susie Faber Hamilton she was an Olympic runner um she had bipolar she has bipolar disorder she was an escort um so her book is about that um she might want to interview her too she's amazing um her brother committed suicide she she was on the New York Times bestsellers list so she had bipolar disorder she was an escort and she was an Olympic runner her book is called Fast Girl it's an amazing book. Um, so I highly recommend that. These are great suggestions. I'm actually yeah. very interested in the last one you yeah. you brought. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. Okay. So what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you, find you? Do you have a website? I do. It's NikkiDeBose.com. You can find me on Twitter. Tweet at me. It's uh, at the Nikki DeBose. Also on Facebook, it's at the Nikki DeBose. Um, my Instagram is at the Nikki DeBose. What about that? They all three match. Yeah. So, right. yep. Yeah. Just don't tweet anything mean at me or else I will still come and hang you by your toes. Um, <laughs> not really. I, I, I welcome the negative comments. I like them. I get a lot of them. I like them. It makes it interesting. But, um, yeah, you can, you know, I like talking to people so you can come and, and chat with me. I like it. Okay. And two more questions for you. The fourth question is, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? You know, I always, when I'm in my darkest moments, and I, I really do get dark, I, I always go back to thinking what friends of mine say, you know, never, ever give up. Because I think that it's when we are sitting and we're sad and, and we feel like we want to give up, just knowing that not giving up, it really, it really makes a big difference. Sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> um, and he's and he's right there telling you never give up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he's confirming that. So I will tell you, no matter what, no matter what it seems like like life is is not worth living. Don't ever give up on yourself because you are worth more. You are worth all the love in the world. And tomorrow is another day, and it's worth a chance, you know, to make it good. So don't ever give up on yourself. Beautiful, beautiful. And if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? There's a lot of them. I, I think that, you know, if you're feeling like um, like you don't know, like you're in that dark place and you don't know what to do, I would say just start by, just start by um, you know, either writing down what you're feeling um, because writing was an extremely healing tool for me. You know, so just start by writing out your feelings or start by reaching out to someone. And in some way, shape, or form, communication is a highly effective tool. So either by writing or reaching out to someone, um, you know, nobody's going to think that you're weird. They're there to love you. They're, they're there to help you. And from there, you know, it's going to open up a path of, of healing. Yeah, that's what I would say. Beautiful, beautiful. Great suggestions, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, O. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered. <laughs> I 
get an A plus. All right. So, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.